Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are in the world. Thanks for tuning in and listening to the 35th Scottish Field podcast, released on Wednesday, February the 2nd, 2022. Thanks for joining us today. My name's Kenny Smith and I'm the web editor of Scottish Field. And over the next 40 minutes or so, I'll be telling you all about our latest issue, as well as meeting our two guests. Every month, Scottish Field brings you the best of all things Scottish, heritage, interiors, antiques, gardens, wildlife, motoring, whisky and country news, as well as interviews with famous Scots names. Our March 2022 edition is being released this week, in shops and online, and you'll be able to find it any day now, and we'll tell you all about it next week. You can find it priced £4.75 at www.scottishfield.co.uk forward slash subscriptions and you can also find it in all good shops, as they say. Our first guest this week is John Savornin, who's directing a new Scottish Opera Highlights production, which is touring to 18 venues around the country this spring. Tickets are on sale now for the new vaudeville-inspired show. Starting on February the 8th at Webster's Theatre in Glasgow's West End, the tour will visit Burnham, Midmar, Fochabers, Tame, Wick, Harris, North Uist, the Isle of Barra, Ardfern, Lochranza, Cove, Newton Stewart, Melrose, Lockerbie, Troon, Killen, and finally finishes at Cumbernauld Theatre on the 19th of March. John directs a cast that includes Scottish soprano Monica McGee, former Scottish opera emerging artists Margot Arsani and Sheng Zi Ren, who were both in Cozy Fantuti earlier in 2021, and Dan Shelby, who was in The Gondoliers in 2021. This is a great chance for audiences to see Margot and Sheng Zi perform in opera highlights, as they were originally scheduled to take part in the tour of 2020, which was cancelled because of the pandemic. The Edwardian-inspired production is an opportunity to hear a whole range of music in just one evening, curated by Scottish Opera's Head of Music, Derek Clark. Audiences can enjoy much-loved classics, including Hansel and Gretel, De Fledermaus and La Boheme, as well as lesser-known gems. The production also features the world premiere of a new piece by Scottish composer Lucy Treacher. The quartet, entitled To the Lighthouse, weaves together scenes from the 1927 novel by Virginia Woolf. So, without further ado, let's meet John. Uh, my name is John Spawnin. Uh, I'm a director and an opera singer, and in this case I'm directing a production of Opera Highlights for Scottish Opera. So how did your interest in music begin, John? Uh, my interest in music came from my parents, really. They were very, very steeped in amateur theatre. They used to do lots of Gilbert and Sullivan and pantomimes and uh, you know, musical variety shows, you name it, they were there. And, uh, you know, I remember as a child them going, going out every evening to do something or other. And, uh, and, and then as I grew up, you know, myself doing a similar thing, it was tap dancing on a Monday, a youth theatre on a Tuesday, the big amateur group on a Wednesday, and 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 so on. And it was just very much a part of my life. And as I grew up and discovered that I had something of a singing voice that resembled something a little bit more refined than than shouting, as it was before, as it was before I was about twelve, uh, I had a very supportive singing teacher who said, "Hey, why don't you apply for?" Uh, applied for music college and, and there you could combine your love of music with 
was uh, was performing, and um, and so that's what I did, and um, and I've not looked back. Fantastic. So where was it that you studied? I went to Trinity College of Music, which is in uh, Greenwich. Uh, it's, it's now in the old Royal Naval College, uh, one of the old ne- Royal Naval College buildings. Uh, had a lovely four years there, and then went out into the world. So where has your career taken you? Oof. I've found myself going all over the shop, really. Uh, it started with doing a very small-scale tour across about 30 different uh, intimate theatres in Ireland, all over the place, actually, both North and uh, and, and otherwise. And and I gradually begun to... I gradually started to work for larger companies, and so I, I've sung and directed for Opera North, uh, of course, Scottish Opera in this case, down to London for ENO. I was there with HMS Pinafore in the Awesome Just Gone, and uh, outside of the UK, France, Germany sometimes, even Lanzarote for one very odd and marvellous weekend in November to do some shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's great. I mean, obviously the pandemic's really changed a lot of that in terms of getting overseas, but um, it never ceases to amaze me the, the, the variety of stuff that we end up doing as, as you know, creative people, performers. It's, uh, it's amazing, really. You've just mentioned two of my favourite things, Lanzarote and HMS Pinafore. So okay, <laughs> you're definitely welcome back on this podcast. <laughs> so when did your first involvement with Scottish Opera come about? Actually, the first time that I worked with them was, uh, gosh, now, it was it was when they were performing the Pirates of Penzance, actually. I can't remember when that was now, but it did a, it did a tour around the, the, their Scottish venues and then went down to... Uh, to England and did a, did a, a series of, of weeks in various venues there, you know Manchester, Wolverhampton, and that kind of thing. And uh, I was I was understudying the Pirate King, and then it was also in the in the chorus. Uh, great show, it was really 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 fun to do. And um, and then I came back to uh, to understudy, and then also went on stage as um, Aladoro in in Cenerentola, which is basically the fairy godmother character. But in the Rossini, he takes the magic out and he replaces it with with a sort of nice sonorous man who 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 gives Cinderella what what she wants. But he's also the tutor to the prince. I think it's it's uh, it's just like sort of uh, a different take on the thing. And then here I am now, and it's really nice to be back. Yeah. And when you were doing Pirates of Penzance, did you find it is it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king? Oh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, of course, always. Yes, you can tell that's another of my favourites. So, yes, I, I was yeah, well yeah. brought up. My parents uh, taught me good musical influences to start with, at least. So, yeah. this show is it's a bit of a mix, isn't it? It's not straightforward what people would perhaps expect from Scottish opera with the fact there's a bit of a vaudeville element to it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in a nutshell, it, it, it's. Uh, I mean, these these projects very much started as kind of opera highlights, where it, it would feel very much like a, a concert in that sense. But over the years, I know it's developed a lot, and it's become, in a sense, it's a jukebox opera where there is a story that's all knitted together by by music from all sorts of different operas and different different composers. And in this case, uh, because lots of the music. Has has a has some quite clear themes in it in terms of the idea of performing. There's lots of references to different kind of performing characters, such as a, a jester, a clown, Piero. There's the, a letter song from the Paracol where she is a uh, she she's a performer herself, and she's talking about leaving her, her the act that she's part of to go with 
go, go and, and have a different job and find prosperity. And there are lots of, of, of themes which really draw me towards the idea of exploring something which was fundamentally a traveling troupe, but with a vaudevillian slash circus slash uh, uh, other similar performance styles all wrapped into this this new and unique quartet of, of players uh, who, of course, happen to be uh, extremely passionate about the operatic repertoire and that, that is the show that they pedal. And it's been amazing to give in the cast are so great and they're so open to the ideas of, uh, of what to do with the, the different pieces and, and exploring new ways of discovering them. And there's something about having that world, those worlds all kind of fused together that has meant that a lot of the operatic pieces are given you're looking at them through a different different lens, I guess, uh, and that's um, it's been really fascinating to explore. It's going to be a fun, energetic, very welcoming, accessible show that will feel like the kind of uh, introduction to opera that it's absolutely meant to be for all of those wonderful theatres that we're going to. Fantastic, because I'd imagine that as director, you'll be kept on your toes constantly just to make sure that everything is absolutely right. Were you involved with the casting, or was that done for you beforehand? Uh, I mean, it is often the case that the directors might be involved in in, uh, in casting, but actually, in this case, we, uh, Scottish Opera, they, I mean, they work with a lot of uh, emerging artists and, and people who are part of that program here, and also, you know, they, they're, they're looking to look after um, young artists that are that are starting out their career and, and and getting to know them. This is a really good project through which. Uh, the company can get to know singers that they that they haven't worked with before. Uh, so they they presented me with with the cast and and of course they're, they're absolutely wonderful and it's been great to get into the room on day one and, and find out who they are and and see how it how it, how we can explore the ideas that we that we had to bring to the project and uh, you know it's um, they've been they've been paired with with uh, with Mark who's a, a pianist from who, who works a lot at the uh, RCS over in, in, in Glasgow here and he's um, absolutely wonderful and yeah it's a very very happy group of people and uh, I know that they're looking forward to getting out on the getting out on the tour going around in their minibus together and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah I suppose that's the thing that given the past couple of years that with a performer's hat on that just been able to get out and just showcase your skill and your talent and so you'll be able to at least get out you'll be part of the team with them and also you'll be able to help these new young performers get that first experience and the buzz that comes with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when we say that it's their first, it's certainly not necessarily their first ever gig, by far from it, in fact. Uh, but what's so nice about the this project particularly, and particularly now, is that we're coming off the back of a, of a pandemic and the situation that, that that all presented us with in terms of live performance. And for a lot of the venues that this is going to, I mean, I know that they they actually just had another tour of a, of, a, of a different project in the awesome just gone. And I know that when those that that show visited those towns, that the audience response was incredible. You know, people being extremely moved by by just the very basic experience of just experiencing some music again in front of them uh, in a in a in a in a kind of in a collective audience. And I know that everyone's looking forward to being able to to share this with people again. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's really made us appreciate what the hell we do this all for, and and and, and what it's for has become so much more uh, at the forefront of our minds. That you know, it's about bringing people together for a collective experience that is 
uh, going to move us uh, and that's including being both on and off the stage you know it's something that we all share in there's a reason why we why why performances have happened for centuries on end i think you know the idea of collectively sharing something is more uh, is something we're more grateful for than ever before right definitely most definitely and the great thing is that you're actually going into the the hearts of the communities so that the people don't need to travel to the likes of Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Dundee, Inverness. You're there in the mm. hearts of communities that perhaps might not always be able to get out and about and have these sort of productions. Exactly, exactly that. And, uh, and you know, hats off to Scottish Opera for, 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 for doing these projects for as long as they have. And I know that they prize them as a, as a really vital part of the, of the work that they do, and, and rightly so. Yeah. And what are you most looking forward to? <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to getting into the theatre for the first time. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting uh, to our to our first date, which is um, the, is, is not far from where we're rehearsing, actually. And, uh, and and us getting to put the lights on the stage, the costumes, and get and the scenery, get it all put together, and see all of the creativity that's gone into this all coming together. I'm also really looking forward to Monday because that's the day when some of our our, our touring set is going to come into the rehearsal room which is really exciting for everybody. It will just give us that little extra lift as we get towards the end of our rehearsals. Uh, and I'm also really looking forward to seeing uh, the, the show on the tour. I'm looking forward to, to, to travelling up to see it in some of the lovely venues that they're, they're going to and finding out how it how it plays with different audiences. You know, it's, 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 a lot of the venues are so different that it's going to be really fascinating to experience it in, in different contexts. Fantastic. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for chatting with the Scottish Field Podcast. My very great pleasure and uh, lovely to meet you. Thanks to John for taking the time to chat to us and you can find the dates, ticket prices and venues for the show at www.scottishopera.org.uk Now, our next guest is someone who was no stranger to the media through the 80s and 90s and indeed the early 2000s as the board of Walker Shortbread last week announced that Nikki Walker has been appointed their managing director with immediate effect. Nikki joined the family firm 25 years ago and was appointed to the board in 2007 as production director and has been instrumental working alongside his late father Joe in developing the company's world-class facilities in Aberlour and Elgin. But of course, Nikki had a career of his own before joining the family firm which was founded in 1898 by Joseph Walker in the Speyside village of Aberlour, with the ambition to bake the world's finest shortbread. Nicky's career as a footballer started in Leicester and took him to Motherwell, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Inverness and Dingwall, as well as some loan spells to Burnley and Infermline, where he played for clubs including Motherwell, Rangers, Partick Thistle, Hearts, Aberdeen and Ross County before retiring in 2002 after a short spell with Inverness Caledonian Thistle. Walker's products are sold all over the world and the company bakes an extensive selection of pure butter shortbreads as well as a wide range of other Scottish delicacies and the company employs over 1,400 people across its site in Elgin and Aberlour and it also holds a royal warrant for shortbread and oat cakes by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen. Coming from a baking family myself, with a great coming from a baking family myself, 
with my great-grandfather having founded Nairn's Oatcakes, it was a joy to chat with Nikki not only about the family business, but also as someone who's played for my favourite football team, Aberdeen, in the late 1990s. So, let's meet Nikki. Hi, I'm, I'm Nikki Walker. I'm the, the new managing director of Walker Shortbreads and I'm uh, one of the family members, obviously, by my, by my surname. Of course, that kind of gives it away. So thanks for joining us on the Scottish Field podcast. You're very welcome. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to having a chat with you and, uh, and, and with our background, there's a, there's a bit of similarity way back in the beginning. So, so I'm looking forward to chatting with you, Ken. Absolutely. I suppose that growing up, you'd have spent a fair time in and around the factory in your younger days because I remember when I was small going into the old Nairns Bakery in Rutherglen and the thing that really, you know, it's the overpowering thing for me when I think of that is the smell of the shortbread baking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, th I think people still say that now when they come to the village. It's one of the first things they, they, they comment on is the, is the lovely smell. But no, you're right. I mean, uh, the essence of my family business is just that. And you end up, you know, if your dad needs a help in the factory, if you're lying in your bed, then you've got to go and help him. And, and I still remember going slicing loaves with my dad on a Sunday morning, you know, five o'clock on a Sunday morning. So, so yeah, we're, we're, we're steeped in the, in, the, in the traditions of the business. It's quite incredible just how these things sort of just stick with you, isn't it? Even though that was 1979 when my family sold Nairns, but I can still picture everything and I can smell it and it's it just it's so vivid. You're right, it just becomes part of who you are, I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, and I think even if you, I was, I moved away from the village for a period, but coming back, it's still all these memories that, you know, as you're driving into the village, it's all these things that kind of get you excited about coming home again, you know, so, so yeah, it's, 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 it's great. Yeah, I suppose that it must have been a bit of a surprise for the family when your career perhaps initially took you away from shortbread and uh, into the world of football. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, I was when I was going through school. I was I, I was doing my hires and my, my my O levels at that time, and I was doing okay. Um, but there was a lot of interest in the football, and my sort of dad grabbed me at one time and said, "Look, you know, you need to stick in here because uh, there's a big wide world out there, and it's right to go and see that. I can't force you to come into business. The business will be here, but you've got to go and forge your own way in life." Um, so he actively encouraged me to to pursue my football career, um, with the understanding that if things didn't work out in good time. I could go back and contribute to the business. So that's really what I did. Yeah, because I mean, I remember you first appearing in football sticker albums what, back about <laughs> 1984, uh, thereabouts, and uh, showing up in Motherwell, then Rangers. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'm, 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 I would like to know that there's none of those uh, sticker photographs still on the go. They, they didn't <laughs> justice, I think, back in the day. So uh, it changed quite a bit since then. But no, it, it was great. It was great. How was it for you at first, sort of moving away from the village and then finding yourself uh, in the big smoke? I was I was amazing. My first club was Leicester City. You know, back in those days, the 1980, I think it was. Travel wasn't what it was, and you, you know, what it is now. And you seem to, uh, you know, a big trip to Aberdeen was the day out for us to go and watch a game at Pretoria or something, you know. And then all of a sudden to, to leave home up sticks and, and be living in the middle of Leicester was, was quite a change. You know, I think my mum bought me about two or three new tartan shirts for heading off in the big wide world, but uh, they quickly got binned when I got to civilization. you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Lester, did you play alongside Gary Lineker? He'd have been coming through around the same time, I'd imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we uh, there was a very good squad. It took a lot of Scottish guys down there. And it's funny that there was a, an invite came through this week to go to a, a reunion for that group of people. So that's going back like 40 years. 
So that's on the, the, the 25th of February. We're meeting at the, the King Power Stadium. So I'm really looking forward to that. So some of the guys I haven't seen in all that time. And obviously some guys I've kept in touch with. But, but there was a strong Scottish contingent down there. So although you are far from home, it was quite welcoming. And at the same time, Kevin McDonald, who was uh, with Cali at the time, and uh, Jim Melrose, uh, who ended up at Celtic as well. The three of us signed on the same day. So, and we're, we're joining a, a, a really strong contingent down there, as I said. So, so it was good. Yeah. And then, of course, you're back up the road initially to Motherwell and then off to Ibrooks, which it must have been quite a, just a real surprise, you know, having gone, you know, the boy from the village and the, the family bakers. And then, next thing you know, you're playing in front of 44,000 people every week. Yeah, it was it was a it was a great journey, and, and I think the uh, the mentality of being from a small village. I think the guys from the northeast are, are all like that. You know, you're quite we're quite reserved. I think, and when you go down to, to to these football clubs or to wherever you are, and you're mixing with these people that you've been watching the television your whole life, it, it really is quite surreal, you know. So, and as you say, you're right. You know, to go from playing in the local welfare league to playing in front of forty five thousand at Ibrox was a, was a monumental step, but but something I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah. I'd imagine that, that, but during all this time though, during the when the season was over, you'd be heading back up north and just keeping a hand in with the business. Um, <laughs> can I tell a wee white lie here? No, <laughs> that, 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 that wasn't the case. No, I think when uh, when the season ended, um, most of the guys went on holiday. There was various holidays, and we just went and uh, and had some downtime. Um, so no, there wasn't much family involvement. Come home in the summer for three or four weeks to try and get back into shape pre pre season. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the, the, as much time I spent up in Avalor. So, but, but I spoke to my dad regularly, you know, two, three times a week, and he was always telling us how the business is doing. And you know, so yeah, although you're very interested, it's it's quite remote at that period. Yeah, and then of course, come 1986, possibly the biggest revolution Scottish football has ever had with the arrival of Graham Souness, and all of a sudden Scottish football was making its mark, not just across the UK but in Europe as well, and. It must have been a fascinating time for you, although you must have been cursing that damn Chris Woods. <laughs> no, no, I think it, it was it was fantastic to be involved in, but, but very quick. I mean, one of the first signings Graham made was Chris Woods, as you said. So right away, I knew I wasn't going to be playing. So when I'm 25, 26, you, you like to think you have a chance of playing, but really, it suited Rangers to have me sitting there as a backup. But I think, like every situation, you try and make the most out of it, you know. So you know you're not going to be playing. So you look at the you look at the new guys coming in, these renowned superstars, and you watch how they conduct themselves, how they go about in training, how they live their lives, and you try and pick up the best of that to, to better yourself going forward. So so that's what I did. I used it as a learning period. And of course, you picked up some silverware in 1987 in a game that I have to say broke my heart. I was a ball boy at Hamden for two years, from 87 oh, to 89. And then there was that damn Peter Nicholas penalty that struck the crossbar and Rangers won the League Cup after that amazing 3-0 draw. Yeah, it was a, it was a great game. I think a lot of people talk very fondly about that game. And, and even the final the year after was the same two teams. It was a high-scoring game as well. I think it was 3-2. That's right. Um, but no, I, I only played in the game by default. Obviously, there was the, the famous or infamous old firm uh, issue with Chris and Terry Butcher and Frank McIverney, you know, so... Um, I played in the game and um, it was great to play in the game. You don't let in eight goals or, or seven goals in a cup final come away with a winner's medal, so it was quite unique, I'm sure. Yeah, it was, it was a great game. Those were three great games, although I did prefer the 89 final when Aberdeen won 2-1. So, I'm yeah. sure you must have. <laughs>
Well, we'll agree to disagree on that point then. <laughs> All right then, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. We don't want to fall out. <laughs> around, of course, this time you, you did move around. You did a few other clubs. You did spells at Hearts, Partick Thistle, and then, of course, uh, moved north to Aberdeen. So what were your highlights from those years? I think um, I really enjoyed my time at Hearts. Um, I went through, again, there was a, there was a strong uh, Rangers contingent there. I knew the manager, uh, Alec McDonald, quite well. And he went through and, and I wasn't going to get a game at Ibrox with, with, with Chris being there. So I had a chance to go and, and I, you know, I had a fair battle with Henry Smith for the jumper. Henry was established number one, so I, I didn't play that often. I ended up, I played about 50 or 60 games um, over three or four years, but I really enjoyed the, the training there. I thought that with two or three different managers, you know, I got to work under Joe Jordan, which was fantastic. Alec McDonald was there, which was great. I thought the training was fantastic. I thought that the physical aspects that Hearts uh, used in terms of training, I thought was great, you know, so you, you, you felt better about yourself. The training was at a different level um, and I really, really enjoyed it. Made some friends for life there. I'm still good friends with Wayne Foster, Scott Leach, some of those guys from, from those days. And then I think from that period, the chance got, uh, I got a chance to go to Partick Thistle and that was just, I, I loved it. It was <laughs> so unique. I think Mr. Lambie, uh, great motivator, fantastic fella. Bit unique, you know. I think I think so. Uh, there was a, a a big squad of um, seasoned pros. I think is the right way to call Patrick Thistle. And when I went there, we were bottom of the league, but we ended up we stayed up that year. And I think you know we had, we had a fantastic team spirit. And I, did, I was there for about a year and a half, and, and I, I absolutely loved it. Probably one of the the most favourite parts of my career, I think, was was that spell. You're playing every week. You get lots to do. Every game was a battle. You, you know, I mean, in terms of trying to get a result, and I, I just really, really enjoyed it. And the fans, the fans at Thistle were, were, were second to none. At Partick Thistle, you could have went there and you could have performed as you want to perform. You know, if you if you wanted to go and, and not train properly, not live properly, you could have done that a little bit. You know, but I think those who wanted to get on and do well, you know, there was some great, great pros. Ian Cameron from Aberdeen, you'll remember. Greg Watson from Aberdeen, Andy Gibson was at Aberdeen, you know, so Alec Taylor had been at Dundee United, so there was, a, there was a good core of very good players there, plus the, sort of the, uh, the, the unique ones as well, but it was, it was a good bunch, good times. Yeah, and of course a couple of Scotland caps came your way as well. Yeah, I, I got one, um, I got my first cap when I was at, was at Hearts and uh, we played against Germany. And even, you know, you, you talked earlier on about the Panini stickers and these guys. I mean, these were all world superstars that came and played that night. Uh, you know, there was Klinsman and uh, Karl Heinz Riedler scored the goal. So it was a fantastic, a fantastic team. So I really enjoyed that game. And then I got my second cap for uh, against the United States a number of years later when I was at Thistle. So no, I'm very proud of those that achievement. Do you still have the caps? I gave one to my dad, as I think is often the way, and there is one in the house somewhere, but it's uh, it's, it's buried a long time ago, I'm afraid. <laughs> and then, of course, um, had a wee spell closer to home at Pataudry. I did die, and that I didn't do myself any justice there, and I really, it's something that irks me quite a lot to this day. I would, I'd finished with Scotland, I, I was leaving Patrick Thistle, I'd just been involved in the Euro 96 squad, uh, with Scotland and my contract was up and uh, I was moving back to Aberlour. My intent was to get involved in the business then. So everything was kind of designed around that. I was having a house, my house was getting built and just being completed. My oldest son was about to start school. My wife was due to have twins. So everything was, was designed to being back in Aberlour. And then, you know, after Euro 86, there was, a, there was quite a bit of interest from a variety of clubs, some abroad and, and, and a couple of Scottish clubs, a couple of English clubs. 
and I, I kind of kicked myself. I, I thought Aberdeen came in and Big Roy Aitken and uh, Neil Cooper, the other Neil Cooper, the one who was at St Mirren and Hibs, I knew him quite well. So they'd been in touch and I and initially said, no, I didn't want to go. I was kind of going to go and concentrate in the business. And then I began to think about things. I'd kick myself I didn't take that opportunity. And the, and the squad that Aberdeen had at that time, you know, they're doing things correctly. You know, they, they brought in the two Bulgarian guys, they brought in the Tony Kubari from France. They had a lot of established internationals there, like uh, Billy Dodds, uh, Duncan Shearer, Paul Bernard. So it was a really, really good squad. The other very good players like Dean Windash were there. And then there's the young kids coming through, like the, the young brothers, David Rowson, uh, Stephen Glass, you know. So everything was there for that club to do fantastically well. And then if you add in the ones I haven't mentioned, like Stuart McKimmy, Brian Grant, Brian Irvin, you know, right away you see it's a, it's a, it's a really, really strong squad. And I kind of feel, <laughs> I was, I was in, I signed for Aberdeen um, and I didn't perform as I should have. I only ended up playing for six months of a three-year contract. They signed Big Jim at Big Jim Lane at Christmas time. Um, so I was always going to be a second fiddle after that. So I decided to terminate my contracts and, and move on with, with my life and get back involved in the business. But, but it's a regret because, you know, I, I, I'm a real soft spot for Aberdeen. Watched the games as growing up as a kid. It was a chance to go and do something uh, with a big club at the right time in my career. And I didn't take the opportunity. So it's a wee, it's a wee, it's a wee regret I have. We'll have them for different things. But So before we move on to talk about the business, mm. who would you say were the greatest players that you played with? Ooh, I, I mean, I think from the, from the period of Rangers, I think, I think, you know, it'd be wrong not to, to mention guys like Ray Wilkins. I thought he was a phenomenal football player. I thought, like, like some Mark, Mark Haley came in at the right time, a big presence. Like some McCoy's as well, we'll talked about for a, for, every, for a variety of reasons, but he was an exceptionally good player. I think the young kids coming through the range as well. I think, you know, Ian, Ian Durant and, and especially Derek Ferguson, I thought were amazing players as kids. So, so they were great. Going back to my Leicester days, there was a great Eddie Kelly was there at the time who'd been at Arsenal, so to play with him was amazing. One of my heroes growing up, I was a big Hibs supporter, one of my heroes was Bobby Smith. And Bobby Smith, who's, who's sadly passed now, but Bobby was at, at uh, Leicester, so I really enjoyed playing with him. Uh, Gary Lineker, as you mentioned earlier, was coming through and went on to, to bigger and better things. He went to Barcelona, I went to Ross County, so <laughs> I passed it there, you know. But no, so, so there's been some great players. Uh, and also playing against a lot of very good players on that as well. So, so no, there's been a lot of good, good players I've played with. Moving into the business side of things, what sort of things were you doing initially? Because I'd imagine that, of course, you mentioned earlier, your dad had <coughs> you know, kept you up to date with how things were going. So what sort of things were you doing initially? Well, I think I think um, that, that was one of the lessons I learned from my dad straight away. You know, he, said, he said, come back in, he says, you've had a career, you're doing what you're doing. He says, that door's closed now. He says, that, that's finished, you know, you're moving on now. And you can't, if you come in here with any airs or graces, you won't have a leg to stand on. People are in here working very hard, doing the very best they can. So I'm afraid to say for you, it's start at the bottom and work your way up. So that's what I did. I went and worked in the factories. I got given time to look about different areas, which I suppose is uh, one of the, uh, uh, the benefits of being a family business. You tend to go and look at different things. And then sadly, my uh, my young one of my younger brothers passed away with uh, a brain tumour. And he was running one of the production facilities in Elgin. So when he passed away, there was a there was a gap there, which my dad looked upon as an opportunity to get me ingratiated in all the ways of the company. So I was put down to, to run the Elgin factory for about seven or eight years, and that's where I was. Then from that, I came back up to Aberlour and was really in charge of looking after all the factories. And my title then was the production director. But we are family businesses, you'll appreciate. 
you know, there's more to the to the job than the title suggests. You know, so you take on other responsibilities. You know, like we source land, we build factories. All, all these things fell under my remit. Equipping the factories, the, the staffing issues. So just a real basic and, and decent grounding for a, for a business. Um, and then I did that up until this this latest move. Something that I always enjoy when I go on holiday is looking for Scottish produce. And of course, first one I look for is Nairns, of course. But it's always a joy to see walkers there because, my God, I love your shortbread. <laughs> you're saying all the right things. Um, no, it is. You're right. And I think you can't help get a buzz from that. You know, I, th I think right now we are expect, uh, exporting to over 110 different countries. You know, so, so whilst you're travelling, you're going through airports, you know, uh, my daughters in particular keep pulling me up. You you go through an airport and you can't help going across and sorting the display out. You know, <laughs> and the girls are forever giving me a hard time for that. But but you get a real buzz from seeing from, from seeing the product in the airports and and everywhere really, but abroad especially. I mean, how big is the foreign market? Because I'd imagine, particularly, so we're talking just <laughs> a few days after Burns Night, that there's there must be an extra wee surge in interest around then. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the 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 foreign market for us is very important, I mean, hugely important, and it's 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 roughly fifty percent of our production. You know, so it's a it's a it's a huge part of what we do. But it's what we export is pretty much hundred percent our brand. You, you know, so it's all walkers. Everything's the red tart, and that we get a real buzz from 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 promoting and and putting around the world. And it's uh, it's amazing to see that you know the different requirements in terms of packaging and legislation has to be applied to all the different countries. So it's never a dull day in here, I'm afraid. One of my favourites around Christmas time is that a leading supermarket does milk chocolate dipped shortbread, and that is just heaven. And my big frustration is that I can't find it all year round. No, <laughs> well we do, we do do an all year round chocolate shortbread. It's not dipped; it's fully fully coated or half coated, but we certainly do that. And and yet, it's, it's, I mean, I think. You know, there's, there's, everyone has their own personal favourite in terms of shortbread or biscuits, you know, but I think, I know our most popular product still is a plain shortbread finger. You know, it sells by far, it sells everything else that we do. So so um, it, it's, it's nice to see that going well. So looking to the future, you've got your new position and I'd imagine that consolidation of an existing market, particularly in the way that the world is at the moment, is is number one priority and just, just keep those growth, just keep the growth going bit by bit. Well, well, absolutely. I think, you know, we, we didn't set out uh, way back in the day to, to, you know, to we didn't set hugely ambitious targets. We wanted to, to perform well, do it sustainably and, and build for the future. And that's really what we've done. But I think now we, we you know, the, the world's changing, as you touched on, it's changing at a heck of a pace. And, and, you know, to keep up, if you don't keep up and evolve, then you'll get you'll get stepped over the top of. So, so there's a constant uh, reinvigorating of the brand going on the whole time. We've worked exceptionally hard as a as a company to bring in the best people we can, and, and, and particularly areas where we where we need uh, support or we need expertise, and that's been a big project the last number of years. So that's sort of coming to fruition now. So I think going forward, although I've been fortunate enough and hugely honoured to be offered the MD role, it's almost a, it's, a, it's definitely a team effort. You know, I think the the, the team I have or we have formed round about the board, I think, is, is puts in a good position. So it's. It's probably something I take from my early days playing football, where, where teamwork is so important, you know. So I don't think any of us are bright enough, ignorant enough, or arrogant enough to think we can do it on ourselves by ourselves and that. So the collective will definitely work for us going forward. Well, I know it's an absolute cliche, but it's really pleasing to see that a Scottish icon is in very safe hands. Oh, but <laughs> thank you for your kind words. That's the first time I've heard that this this morning. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I did say I know it's a cliche, but. <laughs> No, no, it is, but it, but it, it's nice. It's, it's nice. Um, you're right. It's it's a it's a brand that we're very very proud of, and it's something that we hope Scotland's proud of as well. Fantastic, Nikki. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and chatting to the Scottish Field podcast. Thank you very much for your time, Kenny. Bye now. Huge thanks to Nikki for taking the time to chat with us. You can follow Scottish Field on our social media. You can find us on Twitter at www.twitter.com forward slash Scottish Field. We have a Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Scottish Field. Or you can see our Instagram page at www.instagram.com forward slash Scottish Field Mag with M-A-G at the end. And of course you can pop by our website www.scottishfield.co.uk which contains unique content that you won't find in the print magazine as well as links to purchase the magazine online in physical and digital formats. That's all we've got time for this week, but we'll be back very soon with another episode of the Scottish Field Podcast. Be seeing you!